Welcome to Make Limited Podcast, where we talk about inspirational people, motivational stories, and what makes us better humans. We are looking into the history of this narrative in search of insight into our future. Our podcast will hit all angles of each story from bad to good, revealing what it takes to climb out of the bottom of the pit. We like to say, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's our motto, and we talk about it here. Welcome to Make Limited Podcast. Welcome everyone to Make Limited Podcast. I'm so glad you are here joining me on another Blueprint episode for our first quarter of the year. If you are new here, welcome. We are so glad that you are listening today. Here you will get insights to be inspired, motivated, and become better humans. Subscribe today and be part of the Make Limited Podcast family slash team. And talking about subscribing, a huge welcome to our subscribers. Thank you so much for your support. We could not be here without you. I'm your host, John, and today we're talking about the blueprint of the brand Nike. I'm telling you, you are in for a treat today. We're going to talk all about it right now on Make Limited Podcast. Welcome, everyone. My name is John. I am your host for Make Limited Podcast. And today we're talking about Nike and we're going deep into the blueprint of how it all began. So, so much can be learned by just observing someone or a brand, but nothing compares to hearing the true story from the main source. We're talking about the book Shoe Dog, a memoir by the creator of Nike, Phil Knight, is by far one of the best books I have read in regards to one's history. Knight takes you on a journey on what it took to take Nike from an idea to reality. Yes, today we are looking at the character, relationship, philosophy, and direction of Phil Knight and what it took him to make Nike one of the biggest brands in the world and how we apply it to our lives. So before we go into talking about the characters, relationship, philosophy, and direction that Phil Knight took Nike, we're going to go into a short summary of the history of Nike. And we're going to go real fast because it's it's a pretty long history, okay? And I mean, there's a lot of years into it, and I just want to get through it because the most important part, when you see other people talking about, when you go to articles and all those things, you see bits and parts of the history that happened in Nike. So they just tell you the overall of what happened, but they don't go into the nitty-gritty of what really happened behind the scenes, how it started, and you see this all on the book that Knight writes, and you discover a plethora of ideas and movements that you did not know that Nike went through before it actually became Nike. And the history that I'm going to tell you, the, the meat, everything that happened is actually at its best before Nike became Nike. I'm telling you that because that's where all the struggle came. And then afterwards, all the good things started coming in little by little with more struggles. But it didn't get to be Nike just right off the bat and grew tremendously, even though it was doing great with sales. But when you see the story of what really happened, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-boggling. I'm telling you everything in between. So let's just go into a, a brief history of Nike and talk about some of the dates that uh, are, I would say, crucial to Nike's growth and who they are today. So in the beginning of Nike, Nike was founded as Blue Ribbon Sports. That's when it began, when it all began, right? And it was in 1964 when this happened. And the company is created by Bill Bowerman, sorry about that, and Phil Knight with 1,000 
$200 in Portland, Oregon in 1964. From there, it officially became Nike Incorporated in 1971. And in, in 1971, Jeff Johnson established a company's name, which comes from the name of the Greek goddess of victory, which is very, very interesting how it even came to be. It actually came to him in a dream, and that's how one, one of his uh, co-workers, it came to him in a dream, and that's how they named Nike, because it was all about, like, everyone trying to name it of a name of an animal, and he uh, Knight didn't want to have that, and so all came down to that one dream, it stuck, it stuck, it stuck, and Nike, the goddess of victory, which was perfect for what Nike stood. Uh, secondly, one of the things that we see here was in 1984, Nike signs Michael Jordan, which is something that was very crucial um, to Nike's success. Uh, and in 1988, the first Just Do It campaign is launched with running icon Walt Stack. And so that was another moment that we see Nike grow even more. In 1995, Nike signs the apparel contract with the NFL, initially outfitting a few teams. So this is very important also for the growth because, I mean, you're talking about going into the NFL, going into like the college um, basketball teams and all these things that it went through and it started becoming more of a dominant, uh, I would say, team player in the industry. In 1996, Nike signs Tiger Woods, which was another huge win for Nike. And in, in 2008, Nike introduces the Air Jordans. Um, in 2003, Nike signs LeBron James. So that was another huge thing. In, 19, in 2008, Nike signs Derek um, Jeter. I hope I didn't mess that up. Okay, so and then in, in 2012, and I listened to this very carefully, Nike becomes the NFL official on-field supplier for uniforms, sideline apparels, and practice wear. That is huge. You're talking about they're providing everything. Adidas is out. Every other company that tries to come in can't because Nike is the one who's sponsoring all of this. And in 2015, Nike signs a deal to become the official apparel supplier of NBA beginners uh, beginning in 2017. And so that is another huge, huge win. Now that we have gone through a short, short summary of Nike, there are many things that we can go into when it comes to talking about Nike because we're talking about iconic shoes that blew up tremendously in the Olympics, they blew up tremendously in the basketball, the blew up tremendously in college teams, they blew up tremendously in the NFL. I mean, you're talking about so many moves that happen, but none of it could have happened without its beginning, and that is with Phil Knight. And to talk about a little bit about what happened, if you don't know the story, I don't want to ruin the book for you because I, I would rather you go and read the book because it's amazing. But I am going to tell you a little bit, so spoiler alert, on what is happening with Nike, what happened, how it began. And you can use this for your life. And we're going to, at the very end, we're going to talk about how you can use it for your life. But right now, we're going into talking about Phil Knight and Nike. What about it? And, okay, so let's explain the beginning of how everything happened. So Phil Knight uh, graduated from Stanford University with a master's in NBA, uh, MBA, and uh, he graduated. At this point, uh, he already had done everything in his life. He, ha he hadn't been doing any drugs, anything like that. He's a very clean person, and he was standing at a point where he would go running every time. No, he wasn't standing, but he, was, he would go on a run early mornings, and he thought to himself, you know, what is there to do? Because I've done everything, I've, I've, you know, everything that I've accomplished, I have, that I've set for myself, I have accomplished. And the only thing that ran through his mind was 
his on, on he had a college course which was a survey course that he did a research paper on the production of shoes in Japan if I'm correct if my, my recollection is correct um, and so he did this whole big research that literally told him that the statistics of producing shoes were huge in the United States. And he did a research paper and his teacher actually gave him an A. He presented it to his classmates, but his classmates seemed not to be interested. But somehow learning about the imports, the exports, and really having an obsession for this process of bringing shoes into the United States, plus he was a, a runner and he was kicked out of his baseball team, I believe in high school. Uh, but he was a runner in, in his college time, and he would compete against the best of the best because his coach was an Olympic coach, which we'll talk about uh, in, in a little bit, uh, which was uh, Bowerman, uh, Bowman, there you go, Bowerman, and um, Bill, we just call him Bill, so we won't mess up his last name. And he was an Olympic coach, but through this time, he had this idea of bringing shoes that could really mean something because he knew that there was more to running and if everyone in the world or in the United States could run and have that run endurance in their life, they could literally have a better life. And that was his main focus on doing that. His second main focus was that he didn't want to work for anyone. He didn't want to be behind a desk or he didn't want to work the nine to five. He didn't want to because he had seen his dad do it, even though his dad's very successful, but he didn't want to live that life. He wanted to be free. He wanted to have fun in his work area, you could say. And so what he decided to do is he decided to go and travel the world to really get the sense of that idea come into reality. And maybe in that sense, that inspiration of different cultures, different area could really motivate him to make this a reality. And so he did. And the story goes on with different things that, that are really key points to his life. But the main one that I see here was his beginning of negotiation and sales, which he didn't want to do but he ended up doing for most of the time that he was Nike. And so he goes to the world, he travels, he actually goes to uh, Japan and talks to this company that produces shoes that he has studied and seen that they are a good company with great shoes that he can bring into the United States. But at this time, he didn't have... A company. The only thing he had was connection. And that's it. His father had connections in Japan. His father had connections wherever he was. Because um, they were well off. They didn't start off poor. They were, they were well off. Uh, they weren't extremely rich, but they were really well off uh, in their living place, right? And so he goes to Japan. He talks to this company, and the company asks, Ask Knight, what company do you, before he gave his speech that he had practiced over and over again, they asked him, what company are you, are you with uh, from the United States? And at that moment, he goes into his mind and he thinks about what, <laughs> what company he's in. But the only thoughts that can go back into his safety place, where is his home, his room, and where he would sit down and look at his medals and the blue ribbon that the metal carries, that the, the carried by the metal, or I mean that carries the metal, and he decides to call his fake company Blue Ribbon. And that was very interesting because at that time, I, I mean, how would, and it was like 19, was 1962 before, um, before anything like computers was really out there, right? And anybody can go to Google and search Nowadays, I don't think that's something possible that can happen when you can go into Google. I mean, nowadays, if you lie about like, hey, I have a company in the United States called so-and-so, I mean, you have somebody research real fast and find you and be like, okay, yeah, you're legit, right? But at that time, I believe that 
that wasn't able to happen. So it was really hard for uh, the Japanese to be like, okay, hey, you know, he's lying or he's not telling the truth. But at that moment, they went with it and he talked, he gave his speech that he had practiced because he knew all about it. He had done a research paper. He had gotten his master's. He got an A on it. His professor told him that it was a great uh, research. So he knew statistics. He knew all about it. He gave him the pitch. The thing is that uh, the Japanese at that moment, they have a certain way of doing business. And in the book, he explains, and the people who his dad has a connection there actually tell him how the Japanese have businesses. So, for example, if you go into a business and it seems like, my goodness, you hit it right on the spot, they seem happy, they are like, they leave whatever the room, and you feel like, hey, yes, I'm gonna get this. It's more like it's most likely that you're not going to get it. And if like you go in there and you feel like you didn't get it, like you did horrible, it's more more likely that you are going to get it. So at this moment, he was kind of nervous. He was kind of like had that in his head because the Japanese literally just got up and left the room and he didn't know what to do. He was like, OK, do I stay here? Do I leave? Um, what do I do? Because did it work? Did I like it? And they come back because they're discussing to themselves and they, they leave the room and they come back and they leave excited with some of the shoes that they bring and, you know, tell him this is our shoes. He's excited about it. And they'll tell him, look, we're going to give you a sample. Um, you know, just send us whatever payment. We'll send it to you in the United States. Give us your address and uh, we'll, we'll send you our, all our shoes that we make, whatever. He's happy. He travels the world. After that, he... he they make the deal, they sign whatever that they're gonna send him stuff. He calls his, his dad to make like, I believe like a, a money order or like a transit, something like that, for him to wire money, $50, to the Japanese so that they can um, get the payment so they can send the stuff, right? And so it's, it's really, really, interesting after that he goes and he travels the world and sees so many things that is happening but his attention goes immediately to what people are wearing on their shoes and that in itself is very interesting because through the whole process of him traveling and seeing all these things happening he starts understanding the power of the shoe not only does he already know about the shoes and the sales of it but he starts understanding how important it is and he starts realizing the different types of shoes the way that they're made what they're for how they help people and he starts putting that all together for himself and so he goes back home once he has traveled the world he's seen so much and has helped him out so much he goes to his coach which is bill and talks to him about the shoes. And Bill is actually a person who is an Olympic coach. He, let's say, for example, he's like a person that tests everything for his runners. Uh, he's an Olympic coach, like I said. But and when I say when he tests everything, I mean he tests everything. And the reason why he does this is because at the, at the speed that he I wouldn't say the speed, but at the level that he competes at, he has learned that it does not just take hard work for one to get across the finish line first. He knows that there's tools out there that can help the runner be better because hard work takes you so far. But having tools that can help you get further is way better. Say, for example, when you come to the mountain, you can climb the mountain with all your strength, with all your abilities, but if you have tools that help you climb the ice that is solid and you, that can go through the ice and stab it and you can climb up and you have ropes that you can tie up so you won't slide and fall off the mountain, those are tools to help you get there safer, faster, stronger, preserving your strength so that you can push at the very end. He said that his coach would say, you know, when you run your lap, you run, you, you run your lap first, then you put in your, you push the speed, and then when you're already in the last lap and you, and you feel like you can no more, you go even faster than you were going at your full speed. So this is the, the kind of coach that this person is. 
that is willing to push and try everything that will make his runners better. Drinks, shoes, you're talking about wearing different kind of clothes, the stitching of the shoes, the stitching of the socks, the stitching of their clothes. Everything has a purpose to make you better. And so he goes to his coach, and his coach actually makes a deal with him to half and half the whole operation. But the coach doesn't want to be in charge of running it. He just says, look, I'm going to give you this money. I'm going to, you know, I don't, I just want to be half and I don't want to be in charge of the whole thing. You can do all of it and you do whatever you want. He just wants to be a part of it, right? And so he does. And he goes on his way and producing uh, the shoes. And so once he gets the shoes, he's excited for it. At a moment, he thought they weren't going to, he had to, um, they thought, he thought that Japanese, the Japanese wouldn't come through and he sent him, you know, emails, but they send emails real fast saying, Hey, the shoes are coming. Don't worry. It's all going to be okay. And so through this beginning of the start of Nike being blue ribbon, it starts to the process of being able to sell something that he is interested in. Because when he's traveling, he goes, his first travel area, I believe, is Hawaii, somewhere over there. And he falls in love with the whole location because it's so relaxing. It's so, I can say, like, in, like, it's so beautiful. I'm just going to use that word. It's so beautiful. And he decides to stay there. And since he decides to stay there, they have to work. And he goes with a friend, and they have to work. And to, in order to survive and eat and all that stuff, right? So they become, uh, they get a job, and they become encyclopedia salespeople. However, he cannot sell an encyclopedia to save his life. Because, first of all, he's a shy person. He's an introvert. He is not a good communicator with other people, even though he's had all this um experience and education still he remains that shy person and what he found out is that he could sell he could talk but the interest of his ability was more on the interest of what he knew he knew shoes why because he loved to run and he knew that he had a, a coach who would teach them push them to run and the ability to use these tools to become faster, to become better runners, to faster, long distance, short distance, whatever the case may be. And so he was able to go to different schools and, and different like uh, tracks where people, high schools, colleges, and sell the shoes to people and talk to them about the shoes and be able to sell them. Because he knew running, he knew the shoes, and he was able to do that beautiful thing of Blue Ribbon. And so on and so forth, which every step that he took, he was able to do the impossible possible. And that's when we come into his character. So we look at who he was, Phil Knight, and how he started every process. Because you're talking about selling shoes, Right, because he knew he had to fight, figure out what he liked and what was worth for him to go through all the struggle. How did he do it? Well, he figured out that he didn't want to work for someone else. He wanted to work for himself, and he wanted to do something that he loved to do and it was fun to do. So, at the end of the day, it didn't seem like work. It seemed like he was doing just what he wanted to do without anyone telling him what to do. Now, he with the Japanese. Um, shoe fact who were their their manufacturer there was a lot of issues because at some points the manufacturer was looking for other people to sell in the United States and he had competitions that were trying to take him out <laughs> and at so many points and he had a lot of com convincing that he had to do and at one point he had to go all the way to Japan because uh, his competitor had the same shoes that he had and was selling it. And he went to Japan to go see what was happening. And he insisted on being the people who sell for Japan only in America. And as he presented his 
his persistence and his fight for that, they gave him, I believe, like a three-year contract. But he wanted to be like they're permanent, like this is. And so when the three-year was almost up, he was seeing that the distance between the Japanese um, a manufacturer owner was really fading, and he started noticing that there were different things that were happening around him, and that breakthrough of figuring out what was happening, he came to the understanding that at the end of close to those three years, the manufacturer from the Japanese was looking for other people to make shoes, I mean, to sell shoes for them in America because he wasn't happy with the numbers that he was giving them, even though they were in the millions. And so what was going on here was that not only was he going through that process, but since their sales were doing good, they couldn't produce as fast as possible with the manufacturer because the manufacturer was actually going to selling to their people first and then as their people, their customers, and then they would give the rest to Nike or at that time Blue Ribbon. And they would often get the wrong shoes, they would get the wrong size, and they had so much trouble with that. And so at the end, the Japanese uh, owner goes to America and talks to them, uh, talks to Knight about buying his company because he's like, look, I, I see your numbers. I see what's happening. Why don't you just let us buy your company and we can take care of it. You can still run it here, but you know we'll be the main owners. And that's not what he wanted because that takes him back again to what he did want in the beginning, work for someone or someone take over what he has started and had built. And so at this point, he has to break it off with them. And so he's looking for other people and he can't tell this uh, manufacturers in Japan that he's looking for another manufacturer within Japan because he tried Canada, but those manufacturers weren't doing good with the shoes because the shoes were tearing and they weren't good. And so he was asking the question, how can you know, people who live in, well, not people, but manufacturers who make shoes in Canada where there is ice and snow, not make shoes for snow. And so that was the contradiction there, and they couldn't do a deal with them. So they went to other places like Taiwan uh, to figure out other places to have somebody make shoes for them. But they were able to get one person in, in Japan, which was actually the, the competitor of their previous manufacturers and so when they found out that this was happening they went into a lawsuit and so one of the things that he said before Knight said before they do a lawsuit in Japan we got to do one here so that ours can be first and we can attack first right and so they did and long story short they end up winning that and that was it for them to start their own and continue with Blue Ribbon. And so that was all before even Nike became Nike, because before then, he was walking to the university where he actually wasn't paying himself, because they one of, the, one of the things that he would say was, we're not poor, we're not broke, I mean, we're not broke, we just don't have the money. Because every month that we're making enough money to pay for the needs of, the, of Nike and, the, and their employees, but he wasn't paying himself a salary or anything. So he actually got a job as a professor in the university and was teaching accounting, I believe. And that's actually where he met his wife as well. And, uh, oh, and he found a student that was, in, was a designer and couldn't afford to pay for her classes. And they were looking at a bulletin board and, and she couldn't afford it. So he told her, hey, how would you like to work for me and make some money? And he hired her, and she was actually the person who made the, the swish uh, Nike symbol. And his one of his co-workers, or one of his employees, actually had a dream and came up with uh, the Nike, the goddess of victory. <clears throat> so all of that was before... Nike became Nike. 
And that's not even the end of it. After they became Nike, they actually got a lawsuit from the government about some imports or exports uh, uh, payment not being paid to them. And I think I might be wrong on this part, but from my recollection, this is where I, I get... <clears throat> it's a little misty, but he had to go through a process of paying $9 million, but able to fight it and pay $9 million in order for them to get rid of that. And he had to go through a process of facing the person that was was literally being kind of like a jerk to them. And it seemed like they were just doing it under purpose just to get that money. And he had to talk to some uh, uh, some people in Congress, and he was able to find a congressman who actually helped him out. And at the end, they only paid $9 million uh, from that point. Uh, just that one-time payment. And so that in itself was almost places where Nike lost who they were. And at this time, they hadn't even gone public at all. You're talking about, we're already past, like, I believe, uh, let me see, I want to say we're past 1971 when they officially became Nike from 1964 when they were Blue Ribbon. So uh, at this point, we see that they almost lost Nike. They hadn't gone public. If they would have gone public, they would have won this whole ordeal and they would have been really wealthy because they would be able to provide stocks to be sold. But the one thing that Knight didn't want to do is go public because then that meant that he wasn't going to be owner of Nike. And so one of the things that came up with one of the lawyers that was his cousin he came, he came up with, an not an idea, but uh, there was this loop that they were able to get where they were owners of Nike still, and they were able to sell a different type of stock, I believe, that people would be able to purchase, but they would be the majority of, they would still own Nike without having to sell off Nike and everybody tell them what to do, right? Big businesses that are, you know, buy chunks of, the, of Nike so they can be the owners and stuff like that. So he stayed with 40% of Nike, and he had the huge ownership of that and the biggest. So that was the whole process of Nike. But through that process, the people that, that were with him, the closest to him that he first hired, were 100% committed to what he was doing. And this is where we get into the beautifulness of character. Because one of the things that we see Knight through the whole process that we had to do, he had thick skin. He had thick skin. He was an idealist. He was a learner. Uh, he was stubborn. He was a problem solver. He was a thinker. He was social independence. Uh, he, he loved the work and play. He was hands-on. He was a do-it-yourself. He was an entrepreneur. All these things that were produced through the process of the idea of, one, he wanted to have his own business. Two, he didn't want to work for anyone. And these are the things throughout the time that he had to learn how to build. A shy boy or a shy man that graduated from, his, from, from Stanford, an MBA, started this idea by literally throwing himself into a curveball. However, he was prepared. We see through the process, as we saw in the beginning, he had done an extensive research paper on this process. Without that research paper, we would not have Nike at this moment. Without having those research paper or having the people that he had supporting him, because most of the people that he had with him were innovators. They were outside thinkers. They were just like him in that process. And they would actually want to make a difference with the shoes or with the accounting or with the laws that happened with, uh, with Nike. And they wanted to help Nike because Nike would help them and all these things. And these are the people that helped Nike become who Nike is today. And 
it was so important to have these people because you're talking about people who were willing to go out and sell to different schools and go there, literally salespeople, talk about shoes because they were runners, they loved to run, and they wanted to make a running a culture. Back then, people would hunk at people who would run because it wasn't seen as something valuable. Until Nike came and started making a culture, started making it a purpose, and began to create what Nike is today. What we know Nike as just do it, as we know Nike of, you know, keep going, don't give up. All these things, it didn't start without its own leader and its own character and people who were building it and the foundation of Nike, which we see today. And these were the characters that built Nike. Thick skin, idealists, learners, stubborn people, problem solvers, thinkers, social independence. I mean, you're talking about people who were educated. They were, you know? And, and this is the process that I see in today's world because I see a lot of people talk about, you know, you don't need to go to college. You don't need to have an education. You don't need to do this because, you know, this so-and-so dropped out of high school. I mean, dropped out of college. And this other person dropped out of college. And this person, this. But you're talking about if we go and we see the statistics of what is going on here, these people, like say, for example, um, uh, Elon Musk, we talked about him in our last podcast, dropped out of, of college when he was about to get his doctor's degree, and he decided to start a business. But he was already getting a master's degree. Bill Gates, right, dropped out of college. Why? But he's already going to a very smart school. You know, and we see these people who we admire and we see that they did great things, but we don't see the abilities that they had before they became who they are now. And that's some of the things that we need to go back and revisit and look at because when we talk about, say, for example, you know, people who didn't go to college and you don't have to go to college and you don't have to do this, I'm not preaching to go to college, but what I am saying is that when you look at the people that you are admiring, really look at their background and see where they came from. If we look at Nike, uh, Phil Knight, where did he come from? He came from very su su successful parents, right? One of his parents was one of the main um, writers for a, a huge journalist um, position that would make a lot of money. And as well, his mom was educated, but at the moment I don't know... Um, I don't recall where she was educated from, but she was educated. They were well off, really well off. They were from Stanford. He had friends from Stanford. He had cousins that were lawyers. I mean, his whole family was in a position where they knew people that were of high position. And that was important for the family to keep on going. So when he went into a position, when Phil went to a position of he wanted to start his own business, he wanted to bring shoes into America that was building a culture, his father was not too happy about it because it wasn't, you know, the conversation with his, his friends or his acquaintances would not go well talking about his son trying to be a, a, soul sh a shoe seller. And so when we look about here and in the educational world, this is what I see throughout the process of people that I see. If you're going to go into something you need to ask yourself, what does it require? Does it require a higher education? Does it hire some education? Does it hire some knowledge? Does it hire that I need to know the business in this area? Does it, does it require that I have to know accounting? How about booking? How about advertising? How about marketing? What does it require for me to learn in this area and, and become proficient at it to be well effective where I want to be. Because if you see Elon Musk or you see um, Phil Knight, we realized that they had gone through a process earlier that prepared them for where they were now. Say, so for example, Elon Musk. His, parents, his, par his dad was an engineer. And his family was uh, successful as well. He went to college. He went to a hard... Uh, time with his, with his dad 
his family, through school, when he would get bullied and he would get beat up, all these things that made him today who he is. Knight, before he became Knight and who he was, he had to go through a process of going to school, finishing that, accomplishing what his parents had paid for for him to accomplish, and then he had to go out through that perseverance of completing a master's degree. He was able now to complete other things and fully commit himself to it. And that's what he learned from that process. Because I can tell you this much, a master's is all about research and all about developing something that you have of interest. And that's what you do. You write a lot of papers, you discover things, and you do all of that in the master's degree. Now, there's other levels that require more than just research paper, but in the beginnings of its elementary as a master's degree, that is what you go into, writing papers. Now, when we see Phil Knight in this character that he had to build through that process, he had to have thick skin. Why did he have to have thick skin? Because he was talking to people that he never imagined to be talking to, especially in Japan. Then he had to go to Taiwan. Then he had to go to China and different areas that he had to go and talk to people about manufacturing. He had to see things that he never saw before, before he went there. So when he traveled the world, he saw the poor areas, and he saw the, the rich areas, and he saw the middle class areas, and he experienced the beautiful views. And so when he went back to these manufacturers, he was able to see all of that and not be surprised by it, but already have an experience and love that travel and love the communication of where he had been before. That created thick skin. That created him to be an idealist person to think outside the box. Because when you're running your own business, you have to think outside the box as well as in the box. And you have to be a person that's a learner. You have to be stubborn in what you're doing, especially um, uh, Knight. Knight is known as stubborn. You know, he's, he's stuck there with, you know, with the Japanese uh, uh, manufacturer owner that wanted to buy his business, then wanted to sue him. And he stuck with it. He stuck with the people that supported him. He stuck with, with uh, when the government was trying to also take him uh, for, for the money and really break Nike apart. And there would be no Nike no more. But he stuck with it. He pushed. He looked for a way that could solve his issue. And he found it and was able to apply it. This all came together. And as was his relationship, people who were like-minded, people who had a background resemblance, they went through stuff. They were people who were trying to prove themselves. And they were respectful. However, they did challenge leadership in every area. They were doers. They were, connect they were people who would connect with people. They weren't afraid to talk. And most of the people that he hired in the beginning were actually accountants and lawyers <laughs> instead of salespeople. But the reason why he hired them was because they could talk. They had a language that they could talk, and they could communicate with people. They were deep-rooted into what they did. And that was what got Nike ahead. And so, and they were really proficient in their skills. They were really good lawyers. They were really good accountants. And they did their jobs to 100% without fail, just like Nightwood. And there were huge networks that connected him to people of power or people who could actually get him when he would go into this uh, manufacturers in other countries and he had people who would who would know people in that area connect him and he was able to find the perfect manufacturers that would work best to create the best shoes for him this all came into a process that was able to come together to produce what Nike is today but without any of that well, that wouldn't be all be possible if it wasn't for the belief of Phil Knight, his philosophy. One of the things that he looked into was war. He loved the history of war. He loved the generals of war. And he loved old philosophers. The history of wisdom that leaders gave, the tactics and statistics of leaders and, and warriors, how they would win battles. And the world was his, his inspiration. Some of the quotes that he used and that you'll see in the book when you read it is, um, don't tell people how to do things. Tell them what to do and let them surprise you with their results. 
Second thing that many of the quotes that really got me was, the crowd never started and the weak died along the way that leaves us. And that's such a powerful thing to think about when you are facing hardship, when you're facing like really hard things that you feel that you have no way out and you have to keep going. The last one was beating, um, beating the competition is relative easy. Beating yourself is a, is a never-ending commitment. That is pushing against yourself and trying to make yourself a better human. Because you know that the competition is not people around you, but it's yourself. It's making yourself the best that you can be. And that's what Phil Knight was all about. And lastly, which is one of the things that I believe I... I live by is the man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. And I believe that this is one of the best advice that you can get in your life. I like to say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, which is resemblance to this quote here, which is a Japanese quote or saying, and it's one of the things that you will use for the rest of your life. If you're listening to this right now, you will use it for the rest of your life because it's going to help you on every step when you're trying to do a million things at once and you feel overwhelmed. This is a beautiful way of seeing it. The man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. So you can do the impossible, but start with the beginning. Start by moving one piece at a time and the impossible will become possible. All of this happened because of the direction that he took. He went to the world to see it for himself, to find himself in the world. He made, when he was under pressure of finding out, he didn't look for excuses, but he gave answers. One of the things when they asked him, what company do you have in America? And he had to dig with inside himself, but instead of making an excuse, I don't have a company, I don't have this, he actually made something. He pushed himself to the limit he pushed himself to as much as he could, and he did the impossible. He connected with people, and like people like his, his coach, Bill, who was always perfecting the, his runners, and working that the idea of working hard was not just something that would get you to win, but the tools around it would help you to be better than that. And, I mean, again, he worked with what they ate, what they drank, and he altered shoes so many times. And actually, one of his shoes was um, created to be, uh, I believe they were called um, uh, the wafers, the wafers, or waffles, or wafers, I believe. Um, and so... It was, it's amazing to see the process that uh, Phil Knight took with Nike and the company that he built in all the things that he did. Everything had a process, everything had his hardworking, not only his hardworking, but pushing beyond that. And one of the beautiful things that I take from what he says to heart is that you know, having a passion is, is good for something. But for to get to that passion to actually come across and become something, you need to have an obsession for what you're doing, not just a passion. A passion is good. It's always good to have a passion. But to have an obsession for what you're doing will bring your company or your business or your idea to a successful state. So, in closing, what do we learn from Phil Knight? What are the things that we can take away from Phil Knight? Well, as just, we just said, is follow your passion with an obsession. That's, some, that's one thing that we can take from the story of Nike and Phil Knight. Second thing is, if you are going to struggle, struggle in something you love, because then it will be a little less painless. And this is so true when it comes to it. Third thing is learn all you can of the business you want to be in. 
And I've said this before several times in our podcast, but this is so true. So true. And the next thing is hire people like-minded that have a passion just like you. Next, we have <laughs> having lawyers as friends, family members, or employees is not a bad idea for you and your business. It's something that you should probably take into account. You know, don't push them away because they are there, but actually bring them in. And another thing is be honest and treat everyone right. This is one of the things that through the book we see over and over again that the field struggles with because there's points that he wants to do what other companies are doing that are wrong. And so many times, about three or four times, he goes through that process, that goes through his mind, and he has to revert back to one of the things that he says all the time, and it's, it's that people will know you by the rules you break. And he keeps repeating that every single time that he struggles with that, and he wants to be dishonest when he wants to be this, and he decides to be honest and do the right thing, and it actually leads to better things. Another thing that we learn is that everything will work, just don't stop. And this is the beautiful thing. And one of the things that he also says along with that is sometimes when, when you're going through the process and you're trying something and it's just not working, it's okay to stop that and go a different direction. The only thing he suggests that you do or he encourages that you do is don't stop. And I believe that is a wise thing to think about because sometimes we're going in a direction it might be a little wrong. You know, we just need to move a couple of degrees over and that's the right place that we need to be. And the last thing is show people what you want and let them surprise you. I think this is one of the most beautiful things because sometimes we, we can be micromanaging a lot of things and we want to tell people how to do it. We want to show them how to do it because that's the way we want it. And the thing is that people strive, they strive more when they do it the way that they know how, when they are able to, to really bring out their own character and produce something the way that they do it. And that is the best thing that you can do as a leader when you let someone grow as you feed it, as you water it, as you, you know, like a plant, you're, you're taking care of it, but you let the plant grow. You don't tell the plant how to grow. You don't go in there and try to break it apart and say, this is what you're doing. You need to do this, but you let it grow. You just tell it what you need it to do and then let them surprise you on how they do it. And that's all for today, guys. That is the amazing story of Nike. And I am super glad that you were here to hear it because I'm telling you, I know for a fact that it has elevated your life to become better humans. All right, you have reached the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on another amazing episode. I hope that you are inspired, motivated to be better humans. Let us know how Make the Minute Podcast is making you a better human. You can do this by tagging us on our Facebook or Instagram page at Make Limited Podcast. Catch us on our next episode where we will talk about the blueprint of Dr. Miles Monroe. It's going to be incredible. Until then, stay amazing and I'll be talking to you later. Peace.